Thank you, everyone, for tuning in to Written in Blood History, part of the Evergreen Podcast Network, where history is people, these are their stories, and they are written in blood. Sometimes there are people who, in the larger scheme of things, like during a world war, are by and large inconsequential. And yet, the way in which they live their lives, they just burn brighter than others around them. It's a capacity to live the way they want to live, not the way others tell them to live. And thank God for these people. Our subject today has carved out a legacy almost of mythical proportions around his life. And normally, this is where I say to you, now you're going to hear the real story. But for this man, the myth is very nearly fact. And he's just one of those guys. A guy who you might say was mad for adventure. This is the story of Jack Churchill, and he was mad as hell. It's maybe 1960. You're on a commuter train about 30 miles outside of London. It's late. The sun is set. The train is nearing the end of its route, so there's only a few stragglers left on board, work-weary and eager to get home. But there's one passenger that stands out in particular, a late middle-aged man shuffling through documents inside of his Ministry of Defense briefcase. And suddenly, the man's attention is diverted from his briefcase as he glances around at the landmarks zipping by the train. The man slams shuts his briefcase and briskly stands up. He walks over to the window, he opens it, and he pauses now, almost as if he's waiting for something to happen. Then in an instant, he heaves his large briefcase out the window. He sends it sailing through the air and over a fence into someone's backyard. The man then shuts the window and calmly sits back down to his seat. Now, some of the passengers had seen this exact behavior from this same man before, and like clockwork, this same man would throw the same briefcase out this same window into the same backyard every night. And first-timers might think they just witnessed some sort of 007-style spycraft, albeit not very subtle. Some probably thought the man may have just been mad, and they would not be too far from the mark. But there was a method to this man's apparent madness. He was actually throwing his own briefcase into his own backyard, and in his own mad way, easing the burden of the walk home from the train station to his house. Nonetheless, the man was in fact mad, at least in name. He was well known by this time as Mad Jack Churchill, and his life story is one of the most remarkable tales of a strange sort of passionate courage and fearlessness that the early 20th century has to offer. It's a life of romantic, anachronistic, soldiering stoicism that would give General Patton a run for his money. John Malcolm Thorpe Fleming Churchill was born on September 16, 1906, in Colombo, Sri Lanka, when it was still a British colony. Churchill's father was stationed there as a British engineer, but the family was soon relocated to British Hong Kong, where his father was appointed as the director of public works, and they finally returned home to England in 1917. Young Jack Churchill was enrolled in the Dragon Prep School in Oxford and then to King William's College on the Isle of Man. And by 1926, Jack had offered his service to the Crown with the Manchester Regiment. Soon after, he's serving in Burma and India where he saw action in the rebellion in Burma, earning himself the Indian General Service Medal. 
He also became fond of the new hobby of motorcycling and actually completed a 1,500-mile motorcycle trip across India. And it's about here that we first encounter his deadly eccentricities. He apparently had to cross a railway bridge on his motorbike. The problem was there was nothing between the sleepers, which are the ties on the bridge, so he had to steer his bike by hand on the thin rail while he hopped from sleeper to sleeper, trying not to fall between them to his death. And this is about when he discovered what would become his true passion, the Great Highland War Pipes, otherwise known as bagpipes. While in Burma, Jack acquainted himself with the Queen's Cameron Highlanders, an infantry regiment whose colonel-in-chief is historically the Duke of Edinburgh. Jack became enamored with their pipe band, and once back in England, he sought out the best tutors that he could find to learn this enchanting instrument. Soon... He was well known for never being without his pipes, even entertaining his fellow officers with 3 a.m. serenades that they didn't necessarily ask for. But with the lack of any real military action, Jack was restless and he resigned his military commission in 1936 after 10 years of service. He was 29 at the time and he was well known for his talents on the pipes. He even took second place in a piping competition despite him being the only Englishman among 70 Scotsmen. But post-service, he took up another hobby too that of archery, and he excelled at it, being selected for the British team in the World Archery Championship in Oslo. But it's here we're going to turn the tale to another man, a contemporary of Jack Churchill's and principal source for much of his exploits. Rex King Clark had met Jack while in the service together, and they, along with a third musketeer named Henry, shared a love of motorbiking, but they also took flying lessons together in York. And once in the air and out of sight of their flying instructor, they engage in all sorts of daredevil and illegal stunt maneuvers, and the whole group just became fast friends. Quote, As well as motoring and flying, with both Jack and Henry, we visited many fine pubs in and around York, drinking endless pints of mild and bitter, especially at Harry Smith's Star Inn at Stonegate. Here, one drew one's own pint and put the money in the till in between playing dominoes and darts with the local regulars. End quote. Now, Rex had also taken to racing, purchasing for himself a J4MG, which is a really cool-looking British race car of the era. you got to Google it to really get a feel for it. The MG, Rex entered into every race he could, and he was quite competitive. For Jack's friend Rex, he was living the dream life of a young military bachelor. But in late 1936... Rex was flying his plane with that third musketeer named Henry. Rex made an error on the landing, crashing the plane, and he himself fared remarkably well, considering it was an airplane crash, suffering only a broken nose. But Henry had suffered a spine and head injury, and he died a few days later. After the crash and funeral for his dear friend, Rex King Clark became essentially a broken man. He drove recklessly in his races, and he was turning bitter towards the world. His guilt for his part in his friend's death was eating him up from within. But Rex was wise enough to identify this destructive path that he was putting his life on. And so he decided he needed a reset, a getaway from his military stagnation and all the familiar, saddened faces around him. He decided he would take his MG and go wherever the road would lead him. And further, he decided he would do it with his best friend who he hadn't seen in a while and one who was in a bit of a rut himself, Jack Churchill. Jack, by this time, had started and then failed at a business venture, so when he got a letter from Rex to join him on this spontaneous excursion to God knows where, the time was ripe for Jack as well, and he jumped at the chance. 
and it was at York Station where the pair were scheduled to reunite. The massive, shiny engine rolled to a noisy, steamy halt, and the carriage door opened up, and Jack Churchill stepped out through the steam. His hair combed, his mustache brushed, and he bore a suitcase in one hand and his war pipes in the other. He caught sight of Rex, and with a bright, beaming smile, he marched toward his old friend as if to a drum's tattoo. And with a brief, hello, Jack, and hello, Clark, they were off to their first destination, Scotland. Their Scotland trip was brief. It really only served Jack's desire to play the Scottish war pipes on their own native soil. And on the side of the road, Jack Churchill played his pipes as Rex King Clark performed a Highland dance to the ancient music of the Isle. The only souls to be entertained besides the kilted duo were the crickets in the grass and the occasional passing motorists. Quote, Jack and myself belonged, I believe, to that section of our generation, surely a sound generation on the whole, if less stable than our fathers, which managed somehow to be frivolous and high-minded at the same time. End quote. After that, visiting lock after lock, clad in kilt, to use Rex's words, and playing and dancing to little pieces on the pipes, they visited old forgotten family members from Rex's childhood and serenaded young lassies who swooned at the sight and sound of the two young eccentrics. By the end of their Scotland excursion, Rex notes in his journal that it was overwhelmingly obvious that both he and his friend were recovering well from their low points, and that this little endeavor was just what they needed. And after a brief discussion, they decided France was next. Rex's MG was lifted onto a boat and sailed across the channel to Calais, and once in France, Jack and Rex painted Paris red and showered the city of lights with yet more piping and dancing sessions. The locals loved the sight of these Englishmen putting Scottish culture on display in the streets. Quote, on most evenings, in some small cafe, without much persuasion, out would come Jack's pipes. And sometimes, with considerably more persuasion, off would come my shoes, and accepting philosophically the inevitable splinters, I would try a highland fling or a sword dance over cross sticks to Jack's music. There were always willing French hands to push back the chairs, to make room for Jack's marching or my dancing, and afterwards, to offer varying amounts of free wine or beer. Sometimes men in their 40s or more would come forward recalling the kilts from the Great War. And then, perhaps the wine would flow more freely, and Jack and I would listen to long, half-understood tales, probably of Verdun, through which, to its cost, most of the French army had passed during 1916. Occasionally, there would be a veteran with the thin red and green ribbon of the Croix de Guerre, or painted red rosettes of the Legion d'Honneur, which might result in a special evening of piping, communal singing and dancing, and entente cordiale, from which Jack and I would wend our way back to our beds, our heads brimming over with wine. End quote. Rex remembers Jack Churchill as the ideal, quiet, and passive passenger in the MG as they drew a line across France, content to just take in the country's beautiful green fields. And yet, when in the towns, Jack would suddenly divert Rex from alley to alley, looking for more and more interesting dead ends Europe had to offer. Quote, from bar to bar we moved, Jack writing down more and more haltingly as the evening progressed, each new discovery, of which there seemed to be an unending variety, some simply horrid. End quote. 
Finally, they rolled into Khan, with Jack sitting in the rear, blowing his pipes through the coastal air as Rex sang along. Then one morning, over coffee, Jack looked squarely at Rex and said, Italy? And Rex nodded in agreement. Nearing the Italian border, aboard the MG, Jack spotted an old shipwreck below the cliffs down the side of the road, about 50 yards offshore. Rex parked the car and looked at Jack, and Jack, not needing words, knowing the cue, reached for his pipes, and the pair climbed down to the coast. Once on the shore, they stripped to the skin and leapt into the water. They swam across the crashing waves, climbed the wrecked vessel, and made their way aboard. And they petered around a bit, exploring the various decks and cabins, and Jack strung together some brass souvenirs onto a string as a token of this unexpected discovery. And as the two stood back on shore, the sight of the half-sunken ship left a sort of intangible sadness upon them. Quote, To seal the event, Jack picked up his pipes, and still naked, played, with feeling, a lament for a lost, lonely ship. And I did not dance. End quote. In Italy, they did much of the same as they did in France. They befriended a local female singer and took her out to dinner. They ate Italian street food. They climbed the Tower of Pisa. And one morning, the groggy pair were woken by what sounded like an army marching outside. And in fact, it was an army. Italian troops of all different regions marched before them. And a waiter told them that they were marching in the Queen's honor. And then, out on a balcony, appeared Il Duce himself, Benito Mussolini. And he waved the crowd for a moment and then disappeared into the shadows. Jackson Rex were stunned by their luck. Heading then towards Naples, Jack and Rex befriended a couple of Italian girls who offered to become something of tour guide companions for the pair. And after a few evenings of whining and dining, all four made their way to Mount Vesuvius. They got as high as they could with the volcano's tour guides, but Jack had far more ostentatious plans. He insisted on getting closer, so their Italian girlfriends led them up the mountain a bit and came upon a local boy sleeping on the warm rocks. And after coming to terms with being awoken by a beautiful young Italian girl on the side of a volcano, the boy offered to show them a little-known route up the side of the mountain. Quote, So, leaving the girls behind, we scrambled up the steep side of the cone, the hard, jagged lumps of ash sliding away beneath our feet, the crepe rubber soles of my shoes melting beneath me, until we stood on the lip itself, looking down on the swirling, bottomless pit of smoke and steam. At intervals, there would be a quiet rumble and a hiss, and suddenly, out of the steam, an accumulation of stones and debris would shoot up straight 50 feet or more and then dropping back into the pit. When this happened, the boy and I would cower back, hunching our heads and shoulders protectively. To me, it felt eerie, primeval, beyond man's control. To Jack, however, it was glorious drama. He stood there, his Macmillan kilt bright against the gray smoke, Chin up, fingers working, left elbow rhythmically squeezing the sack and his right foot tapping the beats, playing a wild heathen dance to Vulcan, the Roman fire god. End quote.
While these best of friends enjoyed wine, women, and volcanoes, war was brewing in the world, and England was in the precarious situation of not even knowing who their next king would be. When the Edward VIII and Mrs. Simpson scandal was heating up, Jack and Rex felt that they, as Englishmen, should be back in England. And so, eating one last pasta lunch with their Italian tour guide girlfriend companions, they drove the MG 1,500 miles back to England. And after the MG was lifted off the ferry in the pouring rain, with Jack asleep in the passenger seat, Rex began driving towards London. But he was suddenly stopped, at a crossing, by a police officer who politely cautioned Rex that he's been driving on the wrong side of the road. The inexorable clouds of incalculable death and destruction were now overshadowing all of Europe. And like everyone else, Jack and Rex were swept into the storm. Now, so far, this story has been set up as something of a buddy film. And if this was Hollywood, it would turn into something overly sentimental, a tale where one of these friends is promising the other that as he dies to care for the woman he loves. But this isn't Hollywood. This is real life. And sometimes real life is less like a Ben Affleck and Pearl Harbor movie and more like a Chuck Norris movie. Continuing with our film analogies here, a quote comes to mind, and I've used it before on this podcast. Sometimes there's a man, and he's the man for his time and place. Well, this isn't the Big Lebowski, but the quote is apropos because, as you're about to see, Jack Churchill is the man for his time and place. Rex King Clark tells us that he and Jack started off the war in September of 1939 with the British Expeditionary Force in the 2nd Manchester's 1st Corps Machine Gun Battalion. They spent their days digging defensive ditches along the French-Belgian frontier that actually would never be used. Quote, We would visit each other regularly at our respective companies' HQs, drink stout and champagne, and talk over old times and the times to come. Occasionally, we would make a foray into the nightlife of Lille, which, during those strange, eerie months, was pretty hectic. End quote. Then in December of 1939, Jack was placed second-in-command of D Company and sent to the Maginot Line with the French to patrol for Germans who might be looking for defensive weaknesses. Now, as a British soldier, Jack was easy to pick out on the battlefield, but not because he was an Englishman amongst Frenchmen. You may recall his love for the Scottish war pipes and archery. Well, Jack considered these part of his uniform, his bagpipes slung across his shoulder alongside his bow and quiver of arrows. But he had another anachronistic weapon at his side as well, a Scottish claymore. Jack was in fact said to insist, quote, Any officer who goes into action without his sword is improperly dressed. End quote. So let your imaginations fly with that image. I think it's pretty impossible to over-exaggerate how outlandish Jack must have looked on a 20th century battlefield. And yet, there's no evidence of anyone taking him anything but deadly serious in war. There are even unconfirmed tales that seem to live on in archery lore of Jack sniping out German soldiers with arrows in the frigid winter of 1939 on the French border. Next, Rex tells us that his friend disappeared into Finland as part of a special force to help them defend their soil against a Russian invasion, which would become known as the Winter War. But by the time the Germans invade Belgium in May of 1940, Jack Churchill, with his bow, his pipes, and his claymore, were back in the Manchesters. Rex describes Jack as a man possessed with war. He never cowered from explosions and bullets, and he relished in the smells and the sights. He was an individualist in battle. He never marched with the masses of troops, always instead volunteering for missions that required a select few, what he called his halfbacks, while he described his position as the striker. Quote, 
He believed with reason that in attack, a very small, bold force with the benefit of bluff could often achieve greater penetration than a much larger but more lethargic body. However, he did not always keep in mind in his enthusiasm that the larger body would be needed eventually to complete the business and hold the ground gained. Or, if he did not appreciate this, as a commander, he was rarely in a position to arrange it since, more likely than not, Jack, sword literally in hand, would be leading the attack with his halfbacks at his shoulder and no one else in sight. End quote. Rex tells us that if Jack was forced to flee the field, he was always the last to do so and not without a Parthian shot with his bow, which is a fancy way of saying that he let loose one final arrow as he left the field. By the end of May of that same year, the British Expeditionary Force was in full retreat from the Nazi war machine and headed to the beach of Dunkirk for evacuation. Jack's company commander, a man named Tommy Woosley, was wounded in the retreat, and so the command was handed over to Jack Churchill. On May 27th, commanding a force in Manchester, Churchill was charged with holding the town of Lepinay to fend off the German advance and allow the British more time to retreat. In his book, The Bowmen of England, author Donald Featherstone describes Jack as, quote, Climbing into the loft of a small granary, Captain Churchill saw, some 30 yards away, five Germans sheltering behind a wall, but in clear view of the granary. Captain Churchill lifted his bow and took careful aim and loosed the shaft to see his arrow strike the center German in the left side of his chest and penetrate his body. End quote. After Lepinay, Rex King Clark was chatting with a gunner in Flanders Fields when a motorbike came puttering up the road. And even from a distance, Clark recognized the blonde mustache waving in the wind. And as the bike rolled to a stop, Rex shouted for Jack as he was overjoyed to see his old friend again and alive and well at that. Hello, Clark, Jack shouted back as he parked his bike, and Rex remembers Jack's facial wrinkles accentuated by dirt and grime, and so Jack joined the group at the table and inquired if they had anything to drink. And as they chatted, Rex remembers looking over Jack's bike and admiring the assortment of items tied and strapped to its side, his longbow, of course, with the feathered shaft sticking out from the sack, and then a German officer's cap. Rex then noticed Jack's ear and neck was smattered with blood. When he asked about the apparent injury, Jack told him that earlier in the day he and his men were walking across the street when a German machine gun opened fire on them, and all the men ran to the other side, but he just continued walking because he was too damn tired to run, and thus was nicked in the ear by a bullet. A few days later, when finally reaching Dunkirk Beach, a soldier in his war diary recalls, quote, One of the most reassuring sights of the embarkation was the sight of Captain Churchill passing down the Dunkirk Beach with his bow and arrows, his high example, and his great work, were a great help to the 4th Infantry Brigade. End quote. After the Dunkirk evacuation, Rex and Jack signed up with the newly formed British commandos. Jack's first mission was to lead two troops in an amphibious invasion of the island of Molloy off the coast of Norway. The British Air Force had preempted the assault with bombings that created a smokescreen to prevent the enemy from seeing the coming invasion force. As Jack's vessel approached the shore with the rattles of aircraft bombardments and the cool northern seawater splashing aboard the boat, Jack unsheathed his greatest weapon, his Scottish war pipes, and to the tune of the March of the Cameron Men, Jack's boys leapt ashore. And Jack Churchill, at the head of his men, then put away his pipes and drew his claymore and dashed into the fog of the smokescreen, beckoning his men to follow him to whatever end. And they did. The invasion was a success, though Jack was not entirely uninjured. A demolition charge exploded near him, breaking his hand and gashing his forehead. But in September of 1943, still in the commandos, would come his most famous military operation. Jack oversaw a number two commando during the American and British Salerno landing in Italy. 
He, of course, had his claymore at his side and his pipes and bow slung on his back. Jack then found himself under the command of the 167th Infantry, and his commander gave him the dangerous mission of raiding the small town of Molina, which controlled a pass out of Salerno and was currently occupied by an unknown number of Germans. Rex tells us that Jack's mission was to take a prisoner or two, probably for intel gathering. And true to form, as we've discussed already, Jack chose a small force to go with him, just two men, to sneak to the outskirts of the town. But reaching Molina, Jack's two halfbacks stayed back as he alone entered under the cover of night. And he silently approached two German sentries guarding an entrance to the town. And from the shadows, he slung a slipknot around one of them, and he put the point of his claymore in the other's back. And shouting some crude Germanic orders, he disarmed the pair and marched them out of the city into the hands of his two men waiting outside Molina. And it was in this fashion that Jack Churchill ended up silently relieving the entire garrison of 42 Germans and an 81mm mortar crew of their post and at the point of a Scottish claymore. He took the rifle boats out of the prisoners' weapons and made them carry their own gear along with the mortar and explosives that they had with them. And seeing that they had five wounded soldiers among them, Jack ordered the captured Germans to mobilize a farm cart to wheel their own injured away with them. And so Jack marched the nearly 50 prisoners that he had captured himself without a shot being fired back to the camp, and he fed them as if they were his own men, before finally delivering them to the POW cage that was, prior to this night, quite empty. Writing to Rex about this unbelievable event, Jack remembered, quote, I maintain that as long as you tell a German loudly and clearly what to do, if you are senior to him, he will cry, Yahoo, and he will get on with it enthusiastically and efficiently, whatever the surrounding situation. That is why they make such marvelous soldiers. End quote. Unfortunately, though, Jack Churchill got less sleep than his prisoners that night, for he had lost his claymore in hand-to-hand combat and was forced to return to Molina around 1 a.m. to retrieve it. When asked about his daring, individualistic style, Jack simply brushed it aside as a bit mm, arrow flinish. In June of 1944, Jack and his men were assaulting an island off the coast of Croatia alongside Yugoslav forces attacking German positions. And Jack, leading his 40 Marine commandos, was tasked with taking Hill 622, which Rex describes as the key geographic feature in the area. And so there it was, with bullets flying and shells bursting, that Jack Churchill at the head of his men, and playing his bagpipes, charged the hillside. But the German artillery and machine gun fire was too intense, and Jack's men began falling at his side. The few survivors took cover in a nearby defilade and hit the deck. And as they were laying there, keeping their heads just inches below the whizzing lead in the air, the hopelessness of their situation began to bear down on them. They knew the enemy was only feet away, and they were trapped and vulnerable. Jack Churchill, thinking it would be his last opportunity, put his pipes to his lips and began playing Will Ye Know Come Back Again. He serenaded the bloody, dirty, war-torn European battlefield with the eternal sounds of Scotland. It's an intimate moment for a group of guys who are expecting to die at any moment. Then in the midst of the sounds of the war pipes, they all watched as a grenade landed near them, and then all went black. Dazed by the explosion, about six of them in all, including Jack, were taken prisoner. Jack was taken to the mainland, into the city of Mostar, in modern-day Bosnia and Herzegovina. The German commander, Major General Kubler, confiscated Jack's pipes and his sword, and he was absolutely adamant that he had just landed a gold mine of a prisoner. 
for an Englishman bearing the name of Churchill must surely be some close relative to a much more important Churchill. No matter what Jack did or said, nothing could persuade the commander that he was not related. Alas, as a punishment for his obstinance, he was sent off to Berlin to a concentration camp. But before he was sent away, Jack penned a note for one of his captors, quote, Dear Captain, just a short note to thank you and your men for our current treatment during our stay with you. The food was rather short and less than we are used to, but that could not be helped under the circumstances. I hope that after the war we shall meet again, and in any case, should you at any time find yourself in England or Scotland, ring up Helenburg 222 or Guerrero's Cross 2120, where you will find me, and I hope, will dine with my wife and I. Farewell, Jack Churchill. End quote. Jack arrived at Sachsenhausen camp and was thrown into a cell where he was handcuffed and chained to the floor. And probably because of his stately name, he shared a cell with the former Chancellor of Austria and the former German finance minister. The Germans apparently still believed that they had landed a whale. Soon Jack befriended a squadron leader in the RAF, and the two men decided that a German concentration camp was not the place they wanted to die in. And so, in true Andy Dufresne style, they began secretly tunneling under the camp. And on September 23, 1944, the pair made a break for it. They emerged onto the surface near the side of a road outside the camp, and there they found a railway track and thought they might follow it north to the Baltic Sea. And they actually got quite close, but nearing the coastal town of Rostock, Germany, a military work crew spotted them and chased them over a chain-link fence. They came up to another fence, climbed that one, and only to find that they had actually just climbed inside of another prison. Recaptured now, Jack Churchill was sent to a prison in Niederdorf, Austria. And a few months later, on the night of April 20th, 1945, Jack was with a few other prisoners working outside the camp under the sharp eyes of armed German guards and bright spotlights. But the electricity failed, and the floodlights went out, leaving the entire work party in darkness. And in the confusion, Jack simply tiptoed backwards into the brush and disappeared into the midnight. And he just kept walking, and he never stopped. He thus survived the next few days in the forest and woods of Germany, living off soups made from forage vegetables, and he apparently kept matches and a small tin on his person in the event that such an escape opportunity presented itself. He thought he might make his way over the Alps and into Italy, but on day 8, he badly sprained his ankle, and he knew he must find friendly forces soon. Finally, from a wooded hill, he spotted a column of armored vehicles traveling down the road, and they were vehicles that bore the unmistakable white star of the American army. And so there it was that the last tank in the column spotted a disheveled, dirty, limping British military man screaming and hollering and running down the hillside in their direction. Recounting the event, he told Rex, quote, I couldn't walk very well, and I was so out of breath I could scarcely talk, but I still managed a credible Sandhurst salute, which may have done the trick. End quote. When World War II finally ended, so too ended Jack Churchill's readily available opportunities to put himself in unbelievable danger. And so he took up parachuting, earning his license, and becoming a professional at it. He also, out of his ever-growing love for all things Scotland, in 1948 joined up with the 1st Highland Infantry, of which he was made second in command, and they were bound for Jerusalem. The newly formed State of Israel had its military backing from Great Britain, and the enemies of this fledgling country were many. Britain also found itself in the precarious position of governing Palestine thanks to a 25-year-old agreement established in the defunct League of Nations. Tension in the area was quite literally explosive. On the day before Britain's mandate over Palestine was set to end, Tuesday, April 13, 1948, 
A Jewish convoy of doctors and nurses was on its way to aid the hospital and university in Jerusalem. But the convoy came under a surprise attack, and mines began exploding in the road. The convoy was brought to a halt, and the hundred or so doctors and nurses hunkered down in the buses and ambulances as they tried to evade the Arab sniper fire that was coming from all sides, bearing down on them from behind rocks and hills and even inside homes. That same morning, Jack Churchill and his first Highlanders had been on parade march along with other British forces, and then in the crowd, Jack spotted a soldier calling for him and waving a piece of paper. Quote, Jack, who was second in command, was part of an inspection party, walked over to the soldier, who turned out to be a signals orderly with a wireless message from Tony's post in Sheikh Jarrah. The signal stated that the Jewish Hadassah convoy had been ambushed by the Arabs below the post, and the road had been mined, and that much firing was going on. The signal was timed 0930. End quote. Jack ordered a message to be given to his commander that there was trouble with the Jewish convoy and that he was going to inspect the situation for himself. So he hopped in his dingo, which is like a little armored buggy, and he ordered his driver to hit the gas. They drove up to the top of a rocky hill where Jack could fully survey the situation. And what he saw was an impending massacre. The Arab soldiers were firing from protected positions inside houses and behind rocks and with many more soldiers swarming in to join the fight, while the Jewish guards impotently returned fire. Jack immediately radioed to his command that he needed artillery, specifically two 25-pound field guns, to blast the Arabs from their position. But the last thing Britain wanted was a military engagement with the Palestinians on the day before their mandate was set to end. So his request was denied. He reiterated the deadliness of the situation and asked for two armored cars with mounted guns so he could evacuate the survivors. HQ agreed, but said it would take time to get them there. So Jack then pieced together a small force while he waited for backup. He found a few British soldiers, an armored police car, and a small tank to escort him around the battlefield. He then returned to the ambush site and positioned the police car and tank in a cover position about 50 yards away from the convoy where they could also effectively return fire. Jack then, in his arrow-flinish way, hopped out of the dingo and alone walked calmly to the middle of the firefight, making his way to the Jewish convoy with bullets flying through the air. He recounted to Rex, quote, as I walked along, swinging my blackthorn walking stick, I grinned like mad from side to side, as people are less likely to shoot at you if you smile at them. Of course, having come straight off a battalion parade, I was very dressed up, in Glengarry, tunic, Sam Brownie belts, but no claymore, kilt, hairsporan, and red with white diced hose, and white spats. This outfit in the middle of the battle, together with my grinning at them, must have made the Arabs laugh. And anyway, they didn't shoot at me. End quote. Finally, after parading himself across the battlefield, grinning ear to ear, he reached the buses, and he banged down the door with his walking stick. A woman inside asked who it was, and he replied, quote, This is Major Churchill of the Highland Light Infantry, and I am here with a big, powerful armored vehicle, and I can evacuate you from this bus, and each of the other buses in turn, if you would like to come. But there may be casualties when we transfer you from one to the other. Do you understand that? End quote. They asked if he would first drive off the Arabs before they venture out. And he said there's no way he can do that, that he only has 12 men with him and there are hundreds of enemy combatants. The woman replied that she would have to talk about it with the doctors, quote, Well, hurry up and decide, because it is very dangerous for me outside here, end quote. Finally, a response came. No thank you, they said. They will wait for the Jewish army to save them. Jack made the same offer to the other buses, and each time he received the same reply. And during these frustrating moments, Jack then received communication that his gunner on the tank had been hit and was dying. And so Jack again banged his walking stick on the bus door. Quote, Look, one of my men has been killed, so I am leaving at once, and you are on your own. End quote. Jack's men continued to help return fire when they could, but the Arab numbers were growing exponentially. 
And finally, with the Jewish convoy unwilling to accept any British help, Jack and his men left the scene. And soon after, Molotov cocktails hit the buses and they exploded into flames. By the end of it, nearly 80 Jews lay dead, burned beyond recognition. Another 25 were wounded. And by the time the armored cars arrived, it was all over. A few weeks later, Jewish doctors were still being sniped out by Arabs as they tried to evacuate their hospitals. So Jack personally and safely escorted 700 doctors, nurses, and patients out of the hospitals being targeted by the Arabs. And to demonstrate that there was no danger, and in his own words, to show that the British meant business, he stood atop of his jeep, offering himself as the most prominent target on the battlefield. And he twirled his walking stick like a madman, grinning ear to ear. Jack's lifelong friend, that young man who he climbed the edge of a volcano with, Rex King Clark, tells us that Jack Churchill died peacefully on March 8th in 1996 at the age of 89. The Daily Telegraph published an obituary that read, quote, Lieutenant Colonel Jack Churchill, who has died aged 89, was probably the most dramatically impressive commando leader of the Second World War. His exploits, charging up beaches, dressed only in a kilt, and brandishing a dirk, killing with bow and arrow, and playing the bagpipes at moments of extreme peril, and his legendary escapes won him the admiration and devotion of those under his command, who nicknamed him Mad Jack. You'll recall that I started this story with the startling anecdote of a semi-retired Jack Churchill chucking his briefcase out of the commuter train window and into his own backyard to lighten his walk home. Upon first glance, it seemed like the behavior of a madman. And it was. But despite being mad, his actions still make perfect sense, especially when you know the full story. Now, you know the full story of Mad Jack Churchill. It's interesting to note that Mad Jack Churchill has something of an underground fan base in YouTube comments. When I was searching through various bagpipe classics looking for inspiration for writing this episode, the comment sections were rife with references to Jack. So, thus he lives on. If you enjoyed this episode and are enjoying this podcast in general, one of the best things you can do to help me out would be to leave me a rating or review, especially on Apple Podcasts. That's the number one spot where the rankings really matter. Another big way to help me out would be to become a patron of the show. You can head over to patreon.com slash written in blood. Over there, you can sign up for whatever you're comfortable with. Even a dollar is a huge help to me. I need to thank my kid sister, Courtney, for the awesome cover work that she continually provides to the show. Courtney, thank you so, so much. You can get a hold of me via the Written in Blood Facebook page. I'm also active on Twitter. My handle is at S2Julius. Or you can shoot me an email at Stephen with a ph dot DJulius at gmail.com. And this little podcast is a proud member of the Evergreen Podcast Network. And this has been Written in Blood History, where history is people, these are their stories, and they are written in blood. We'll see you later. History is the greatest adventure story. But does it ever leave you wondering what the women were doing all that time? 
This is Lori from the Her Half of History podcast, and the answer is that some women were seizing power, or escaping slavery, or spying for their country, or creating artistic masterpieces, while countless others were doing the laundry, getting married, and wondering why their clothes don't have more pockets. If you would like to hear the stories of women doing all of those things, check out Her Half of History at herhalfofhistory.com or wherever you get your podcasts.